This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 11, recorded on March 12, 2019. Hello folks, you are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Fawner. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How about you? Exhausted. I don't know what it is about the Wednesday back from break, but I felt okay Monday. Yesterday I was dragging a bit. Today I just feel worn down. I think it's a combination of being back from spring break and uh, that whole spring forward time. I think daylight savings time really messed me up this year, probably more so than any other year. I don't know. It's called aging. Yeah, I, I don't like to believe in that. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, man. It's called aging. It'll get worse every year. I like to believe in the uh, the Benjamin Button way of you know counting my years. Every birthday I have, I actually go backwards a year. But that's, Does, that's I, I've denial. never seen that movie. Was it was it good? I heard it was, what, what was it? Honestly, with, uh, I just Leonardo remember DiCaprio, was it? No, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Brad, my, I confused the two. I just remember the very, very old-looking Brad Pitt as the child stage, and that's all I got in terms of the movie. I had never finished it, so maybe something for this weekend. Except, uh, well, no, no, this weekend we'll uh, be busy. Yeah, we'll there, be, there, there will not be any yeah. movie watching this weekend. No, there won't be. <laughs> Tangents or Tangents. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back, on track, back, back, get back on track. Um. So today is March uh, 12th, right? March 12th, 2019, yes. And uh, we had uh, looked up a uh, famous scientist for today, right? Charles Chamberlain. Charles uh, Chamberlain. Born 12th March, 1851, died 2nd of May, 1908, at the age of 57. He did not live too long, did he? Unfortunately not, no. That's a shame. And what? He was a French bacteriologist who developed the first pressure steam sterilizer which was appropriately named Chamberlain's Autoclave, right? And uh, I think that was the precursor for the modern-day autoclave. Yep. He eventually became the autoclave, and uh, so he was, uh, Chamberlain was effectively uh, Pasteur's uh, assistant, right? Yeah, he worked under Pasteur. and under Pasteur, and uh, that would be uh, Louis Pasteur. Yeah. Famous for pasteurization. Of course. Which ended up using this autoclave, Mm -hmm. and... uh, Uh, This came uh, all about because, uh, and you know, for those of you that want to sort of refresher on that, uh, go back to our origin of life uh, Mm -hmm. episode, right? I like when we create links between different podcasts. Yeah, why why not? That continuity. But uh, uh, so uh, Louis Pasteur was uh, uh, challenged on his claim that boiling uh, things killed all bacteria. Yep. And a proponent of spontaneous generation at the time, Henri Bastion, very nice. Uh, eventually, thank you, thank you. Eventually, uh, disputed Louis Pasteur and said, "Hey, you know, this this stuff is not killing everything." And then Pasteur asked his uh, effectively the, his assistant to study sterilization. And uh, this Chamberlain guy, who was also French. Uh, uh, came up with the autoclave. And, uh, Think about what a revolutionary kind of principle and device this serves not only hospital care, but... Oh, absolutely. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. microbiology courses, molecular right. biology, your cell courses. Yeah. I mean... What was the mod- name of that Hungarian uh, doctor? Uh, 
uh, way back that uh, pretty much uh, told uh, other doctors that performed autopsies that they needed to extensively wash their hands before they went and performed mm. surgeries and ended up reducing like surgery deaths by like percent or something like that. Was that Ignaz or Ignaz Samuelweis? Maybe. I mean, and I know he's Hungarian. I don't know the... The doctor uh, who championed hand-washing. I had to yeah, look yeah. it up. I'm not that, yeah, that, one. Not that, that smart. One. But, uh, yeah. Ign what, what year was that? That was... Let's see here. Uh, August 13th, 1865 is when he died. So, 1800s. Okay. Yeah, sometime in the 1800s, probably mid-1800s, I would say. Right? So, he, he used to work at this hospital, and he, he observed... 1847 is when he started... Okay championing and uh, proposing the washing of hands with chlorinated lime solutions <laughs> while he was working at Vienna General Hospital's uh, That probably clinic. does wonders to your uh, skin, doesn't it? Right? That doesn't sound too <laughs> healthy or nice. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he effectively observed that uh, patients dying from uh, nosocomial infections, mm -hmm. infections acquired in hospitals, uh, were effectively uh, dying after... Uh, doctors that performed the surgery had been to autopsies before in that day. Yeah, it looks like uh, they, the doctor's words here had three times the mortality. Absolutely. Of, uh, and then he made that wards. link. Yeah. And then he uh, starts saying, oh, you know, wash your hands, disinfect. And then, but he didn't really prove that it was the bacteria, right? Boy, his story could be... No, it's, think it's not like yeah. You'd think with all the movies coming out, you know, about science and, you know, scientific discovery... They never did a movie on this guy, as far as I know. I mean, no, I've never seen one. Yeah, no, this is really fascinating. But, but anyway, let's get back to our uh, scientist for the day, Charles-Edouard Chamberlain. And uh, so effectively, sterilization methods, autoclave. Yep. He eventually devised a filtration process to purify liquids uh, using a porous unglazed porcelain, mm -hmm. which was used in city waterworks early on. And uh, after, uh, eventually, he became a supervisor in some of the departments of the Pasteur Institute and uh, was involved in vaccine preparation uh, as well. Yep. And uh, he also studied the Pasteurella microorganisms. He never really escaped the shadow of uh, Pasteur, did he? No, yeah, there was no... <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> there was no escape lot, in so. that. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, what are we talking about today? We're talking about uh, IBD and uh, colitis, right? Yep, so IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease, kind of like an umbrella term, like a big picture term that's used to describe various disorders that center and focus on chronic inflammation of the digestive tract, right? And two particular types of IBD that we're going to be focusing on, uh, Crohn's disease and then ulcerative colitis. And those will be the two that we really shed light on, you know, the signs, symptoms, possible causes, and then a few studies that we're going to discuss sure, as sure. well. So ulcerative colitis. This and, is you know, for the medical terminologist in me, because I teach that course, I love teaching that course. I know. Uh, so uh, colitis, itis is inflammation, right? And colitis, inflammation of the colon. Colon, meaning your large intestine, right. of course. And it really causes long-lasting inflammation and even ulcers in the innermost lining of the colon and can even spread to the rectum as well. Right. And ulcerative meaning it causes ulcers of course. and that's uh, open wounds, right? Yep. And then Crohn's disease, this is another specific type of IBD 
that's characterized again by inflammation of the lining of the digestive tract. And here, you know, Crohn's disease, we're going to be discussing how it affects different regions of the small intestine, particularly um, the ileum is one of the more specific places where Crohn's is going to attack. And of course, your ileum, part of the small intestine, where this specific portion of the small intestine is where you absorb your vitamin B12, bile salts, um, various different vitamins, minerals, carbohydrates, and fats are absorbed there as well. Uh, but it can also occur in the large intestine, is that correct? Yes. Now, is that uh, named after uh, Mr. Crohn? After Dr. Burl B. Crohn, who first described the disease all the way back in 1932, but he wasn't the only one involved with the discovery, and he was it was named after him, so he got the fame, I suppose, but uh, or the infamy. But uh, Dr. <laughs> Leon Ginsberg and Dr. Gordon Oppenheimer, yeah, so they all collaborated together and observed the first symptoms of Crohn's disease in 1932. So which one do you want to talk about? So you're going to talk a little bit about the physiology, symptoms, causes maybe, yep. and uh, I'll talk about some of the treatments, uh, some maybe uh, not necessarily controversial, but uh, what's the, I don't want to say not common. What, what am I trying to say? More there? specific kind of uh, specificity. What not, are you getting weird. at? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at like what therapies that you don't really think about, like weird therapies. Well, oh, uh, maybe uh, the unconventional. More, yeah, unconventional. yeah. Okay. That's the word I'm looking for. The more inconspicuous yeah, yeah. Types unconventional of therapies. therapies. There okay. we go. So, I mean, we could start with Crohn's disease, right? Sure. So, again, Crohn's disease, uh, chronic inflammatory condition of the gastrointestinal tract. And it most commonly affects the kind of end, like I was saying, of the small intestine and the very start of the colon. But it could theoretically affect almost any region of the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, any, going anywhere from the mouth all the way down to the um, anus. And it is different from ulcerative colitis in that respect because ulcerative colitis is largely only limited to the large intestine, to the colon, to the which colon. is why it's right. named colitis, colitis of yeah. course. Um, it affects kind of the thickness of the gastrointestinal wall. Um, the inflammation can also kind of skip in Crohn's disease. And by that, whenever I use that term skip, I'm meaning sometimes you'll have normal areas of the lining of the, the thickness of the bowel wall. And in others, you'll have like diseased patches of so, the intestine. So, so it's patchy. It effective. is very patchy. So not not yes. the entire length of the colon is affected. Exactly. Right. And the thing is, you know, symptoms vary from patient to patient. And there are a wide variety of symptoms as well. Some patients will have more specific symptoms in a lot of them, whereas other patients will have only one or two of these symptoms. Um, these symptoms are related to inflammation. Inflammation is occurring in the GI tract that eventually leads to the following events. Um, persistent and consistent diarrhea, um, rectal bleeding, abdominal cramps, kind of that sensation of incomplete evacuation and discomfort, and then bowel obstruction as a result of chronic constipation. So not really uh, anything, uh, now how, no, but how, nothing nobody wants to experience. Okay. How is the persistent diarrhea and the constipation sort of, uh, how, how's that meshed? In terms of... Like, how do they mesh together? Like, they seem antagonistic to me, right? Oh, like kind of counterintuitive, right? Well, with 
persistent diarrhea in now, the large... Now, these are not symptoms that occur at the same time. You can have either or? You can have either or. Okay. Yes. And, well, with persistent diarrhea, you're not absorbing, you know, a lot of water back into your body. Okay. okay? So you're getting a lot of water in your stool. With constipation, especially if you have, I would imagine, a high degree of inflammation in terms of Crohn's disease, and you have a lot of those diseased areas of the intestine, uh, especially when it comes to the large intestine, I would imagine that the bowels aren't functioning. Uh, right. They become right. obstructed. Uh, they're non-functional in that respect. Now, I can imagine that with some of these uh, general symptoms that uh, you talked about that uh, one should expect uh, to experience loss of appetite, uh, fatigue, that kind of stuff. Loss of appetite, uh, fairly significant reductions in weight, okay. um, low energy, like you had said, and especially if this occurs in, you know, this can occur to virtually anybody, right? But I want to, I would say that the one group that is probably more at risk would be younger children, right? Because in younger children, the main focus of these is symptoms, growth not, and development. Not, not at risk of getting the disease. No, at no, risk, at, of, at risk of if they have the disease, right. the symptoms and these factors then become much more catastrophic, especially because children are undergoing significant growth and development. And if they're having loss of appetite and dysfunction of their colon and small intestine, then it's going to significantly affect how they grow. And, and this is, this is we're still on Crohn's disease. We haven't yes. gotten to ulcerative colitis. No, we colitis. have not yet gotten to ulcerative colitis. Right. Uh, that will likely, I imagine, be in maybe our uh, second portion of the podcast. Sure, sure. But uh, right now, for Crohn's disease, um, you know, it can come and go. And that's, I guess, something else that is a little weird, a little wacky about this disease, but also probably very annoying is the fact that uh, patients can experience, you know, flare-ups and have symptoms and then might go into remission for weeks, potentially even months, where there are no symptoms uh, whatsoever. Now, this does affect a substantial number of people, right? Like, what is it, close to a million Americans are affected yearly? Almost 800,000 Americans are affected. Uh, doesn't really have a preference for gender, so men and women are likely equally to be affected, and even though it can occur in any age, it does appear that Crohn's disease is very much uh, prevalent between the ages of 15 and 35, and the exact causes even of Crohn's disease. A lot of research has been done on Crohn's disease right, in right. the past few decades. There's still quite a number of holes when it comes to filling in the gaps in the research. Yeah, uh, even, even with ulcerative colitis as well, right? Yeah. But, but I mean, there's some evidence for some viruses or bacteria that will, parasites even, that we'll talk about, right? Yeah, exactly. But um, And it's a very complex condition, right? It, it can is multifactorial. Be, exactly. It can be a combination of environmental and lifestyle factors, so your overall diet, the stress you are under. I mean, think about... And genetics play a role. Genetics will play a role. Uh, a lot, a few major genes that are related to Crohn's disease include uh, NOD2, ATG16L1, just in, uh, mention so not, a few. So NOD, these are intracellular receptors yes. for, um, for ligands, usually pro-inflammatory ligands. So it's related to immune function, right. exactly. And uh, what, what were the other ones you mentioned? Um, ATG, that's autophagy? Yes. 
And um, so the proteins that are expressed ultimately and produced from these genes um, help the immune system in kind of not only sensing and perceiving, but also responding appropriately to the normal healthy bacteria right. that are going to be lining right. the interior of your gut. Yeah. Once we'll talk about ulcerative colitis, I'll, I'll mention a paper about dendritic cells sort of sensing, uh, you know, bacteria in the colon and then keeping a, a, a down-regulated immune response that's more regulatory and uh, a happy balance effectively of immune response plus defense, right? And yep. not over defense so as not to cause that inflammation. Well, that perfect balance, right? You want your immune system to always be in a perfect state of balance where you're attacking the bad things in a certain degree of a response while keeping the good things such as the healthy um, microbiome of the intestines uh, and, you know, in terms of microbiome, right? I mean, we are filled with bacteria. Oh, it's well. like it's a symbiosis. I mean, without those bacteria, uh, that flora, we would die. Um, we would die. Yes, we, would we die. wouldn't be able to have digestive function. Not just intestinal bacteria. There's bacteria on your skin. Exactly. You know? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there's more bacterial cells in you than there are human cells. Mm -hmm. And think about stress too. And this is something else that goes into this multifactorial. A combination of factors that can predispose one to developing Crohn's disease is the fact that stress. What leads to a chronic state of stress, overactivation of the HPA axis, and a chronic production and eventual insensitivity. HPA axis being? Oh, the hypothalamic pituitary right. adrenal axis. Yeah. And the stress hormone known as cortisol, that glucocorticoid that helps you to cope and respond to stress. Well, what it comes down to is if you're in a stressful condition and you have a disruption and dysfunction in that stress hormone cortisol, studies have found over the past decade to two decades that cortisol plays a role in influencing immune, what types immune of yeah. immune system, number one, but also number two, um, the composition of mm -hmm. the uh, microbiome, gut. Yeah. the gut microbiome. So even stress uh, can affect what types of bacteria you have and may dis uh, predispose you to Crohn's disease. Speaking of cortisol, aren't, uh, aren't you guys doing a study this semester measuring uh, cortisol levels in students around examination times? Yes, we are. And the lucky cohort that we are tracking and examining and following is your uh, cell biology um, class. Well, with, so, with cell biology, I'm having me three times a week, I, I can tell you they're stressed every day. I was going to say, you are the confounding factor there. So You didn't, you didn't think about that? I'm not going to be able to parse out whether it's the actual exams and just college or life. Or just that having them me stress. as a professor. You know, we could do like a before and after. I um, test them 10 minutes before class starts, and then once you come in, immediately after, take their blood pressures, respiration, and pulse. Uh, well, and I'll, I'll tell you, that you are likely to see a difference. I'll oh, I would imagine for sure. So, again, we've talked about, you know, how the immune system is linked to problems with Crohn's. And, you know, Crohn's falls under that umbrella of inflammatory bowel diseases. And what it comes down to is a disruption in immune function. Um, we've talked about genetics, right? Who can be predisposed? Who can develop um, uh, Crohn's disease? And in this case, uh, there's even uh, certain ethnic groups are more predisposed. Uh, Caucasian groups, Crohn's disease appears to be more prevalent, and uh, Jewish people also are predisposed. Um, Jewish individuals seem to be at a higher likelihood to develop Crohn's disease within their lifetime. Uh, so there's definitely a, a, a genetic component. Yes. Uh, uh, 
they're also predisposed to a few other diseases as well, right? Which ones are those? Uh, is it is it either Tay Sachs or cystic fibrosis? Which one is more common in like uh, Ashkenazi Jews? I want to say Tay Sachs. You might want to, you might have to look that I'm, up. I'm gonna look that up. But so I want we, to we say we don't get a correction. Uh, <laughs> well, no, we want corrections, right? Well, yeah, actually, we want people to write in. Absolutely, it gives us more. To but we don't want to say about. wrong things either, right? Well, think about other kind of risk factors for not only Crohn's disease, but um, IBD in general. We've talked about you know genetics, um, a family history. If you have a close relative who has been diagnosed with IBD, you're at a higher risk for developing it. The one that predisposes you to multiple different conditions and disorders, cigarette smoking, right? And it's, that's... that's I mean, that's just terrible for everything. Oh, I mean, yeah. You I should mean, not be smoking, people. Oh, yeah. I still... I mean, I think my mother still, uh, even after passing, well, I remember growing up and her saying, if you start smoking like I did, I'm going to come after you. And I'm still afraid of her. And so. she, probably, she probably said that to you while uh, puffing on a cigarette. Oh, no, for sure. <laughs> no, I'm uh, between her and my fiancé, and because I just don't, I would never smoke cigarettes to begin with, um, there's zero chance of me. It's Kayla anti-smoking. Oh, big yeah, time, yeah, big yeah. time. So, um, but, uh, yeah, that was Tay-Sachs. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews, uh, French-Canadians, apparently, of southeastern Quebec, uh, Cajuns of southern Louisiana, the condition is more common. Okay. It is uh, rare in the general population, but it is more common in these groups. And uh, Ashkenazi Jews, uh, for those of us that need a reminder, are uh, Jews of uh, usually European ethnicity. Okay. Uh, Eastern Europe, most commonly, yeah. And also think about, you know, just general medications, right? So these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, including Advil, Motrin, IB, ibuprofen, naproxen, sodium, or Aleve, uh, these medications or possibly abuse of these medications, taking them too much, could increase the risk of developing some type of um, IBD condition. And we need to also stress, we're talking a lot about genetics and lifestyle factors, but it could also be the environment, right? So where you live has a huge exactly. impact on Thinking about nature versus nurture. There is a nature component, there's a genetic component, but there's also what you're putting into your body and what you're surrounded with. So diet also plays a role. Diet is also one way of managing you know, Crohn's disease and IBD symptoms as well. So is it more common in developed and industrialized countries because of that high fat diet refined yes, foods and uh, for sure I, uh, in um, more industrialized countries Crohn's disease would likely be more prevalent I also saw a statistic where people living in northern climates also appear to be at a greater risk of developing IBD and Crohn's you know there was another study I uh, looked at the other day where uh, People in warmer climates as well tend to live healthier, longer lives or something like that, which makes me want to move out of Pennsylvania. I was going to say, what does that mean for the general uh, long-term health and quality of life of uh, Pennsylvanians? And given that, you know, you're going to be uh, moving even further further (laughs) and uh, appreciating, let's say, more of a colder climate, uh, you better better watch out for these IBD (laughs) symptoms. So, so does having IBD increase your risk at uh, uh, colon cancers and things like yes, that? Yes, it does. So, um, colon cancer, uh, general, every 10 years beginning at the age of 50, it's recommended that even if you do not have 
uh, in inflammatory bowel disease. You should get a colonoscopy at least every 10 years, beginning at the age of 50. And depending on you know your condition and symptoms and general health, the doctor might require you to get it done right, right, even right. more. Uh, inflammation throughout the body, right? So arthritis, lesions in the eye, and um, uvitis, which is inflammation of the eye, could occur during um, flare-ups and uh, increased degree of symptoms of IBD. That's interesting. Yeah, I know. Uh, Particularly the arthritis component, right? Yeah. Um, is that a general uh, state of immune inflammation it that sends like the it. entire body into a systemic uh, Yes, a systemic-wide, exactly. Um, there's um, primary sclerosing cholangitis, so inflammation, once more, that's occurring and causing scars or sclerosing within the bile ducts. that's bile duct, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's going to make your bile ducts more narrow because of the buildup of scar tissue and can and gradually cause liver damage. that's the sclerosing component. Yep, exactly. Sclerosing is narrowing. Uh-huh. So um, blood clots also. People who are diagnosed with IBD have an increased risk of blood clots in their veins and arteries. In, of IBD, not necessarily Crohn's, right? No, not Crohn's. As well. So is it that, I mean, increased risk of blood clots, is that... Is that due to internal bleeding at the level of these ulcers? Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think of connections. No, no, I'm thinking yeah. too. With the increased... I mean, it could be because of bleeding and... Increased incidence of ulcers. Um, it could be general over... Over-inflammation. Uh, well, I mean, sort of like over-activation of platelets maybe or something like that. Well, if it's involved with an immune defense, sure. if you're activating and pushing inflammation into overdrive, it could also cause the overproduction of clotting factors and platelets for sure. Yeah, and I mean, for a lot of these things, we, we still don't know what causes what, right? I mean, IBD is a combination of diseases of unknown etiology, right? Well, that's, again, just thinking about the gaps in the research and the fact that it's such a complex disease that develops from all those different factors. Um, this is probably one of the more attractive areas of research for, you know, any scientist who's investigating this, any medical researcher. Yeah. Uh, but um, so that's mainly kind of IBD in general. And I apologize to the listeners if we are jumping around a bit. But Between a lot of these... ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Exactly. We, we are a little bit, but that's that's okay, I think. But what we have tackled so far has mainly been focused on uh, Crohn's disease. disease. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The ulcers we've talked about, The uh, you can get open sores uh, with Crohn's disease as a complication in your digestive tract. Um, malnutrition, of course, due to diarrhea, um, bowel obstruction, the whole nine yards. Okay. Uh, do we want to take a quick break for the radio and then uh, come back and talk about ulcerative colitis? Sure. All right. Let's uh, take a quick break for the radio. And um, for those of you listening on the podcast, we'll just uh, keep plowing through. All right. And we're back. Uh, so let's talk about ulcerative colitis. So is the main difference is effectively, well, first of all, let's start with location, right? Crohn's disease may involve the small intestine. Is that true? May involve the small intestine, the end of it, um, the very be uh, the beginning of the colon or the large right. intestine. And there are also cases in which it's along the entire digestive tract, right? right? right. These different patches of diseased um, tissue. Ulcerative, ulcerative colitis, colitis is just in the colon, yep, large intestine. direct, and mm -hmm. uh, if it goes that far south. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the 
what the, the, the other thing that is more common in ulcerative colitis is obviously the formation of ulcers. Exactly. The open which sores are, are Which ulcers. are not as common in Crohn's disease, right? Not as common can still be can, can a complication, occur. but again, ulcerative colitis is so named because of the location of the large intestine and the development and uh, high degree of ulcers that are present in the lining of the colon. Right, and the other, uh, that, that is the other key difference, that yeah. ulcerative colitis uh, only affects the lining of the colon, exactly. while Crohn's disease can affect all layers of that intestinal wall. Oh, it's much wall. thicker, like right. the entire thickness of the intestinal right. wall is affected by Crohn's disease. And uh, so, uh, and is ulcerative colitis more chronic than Crohn's disease? That is a very good question. So, kind of thinking about just... I know it's a chronic disease of the large intestine, but is it... Is, because there are flares with Crohn's. Crohn's yes, you have symptoms at one point, but then symptoms vanish for however long of a period of time. But I mean, there are also flares in ulcerative colitis, right? I mean, it's not. Well, it's, look, approximately what half of patients who are diagnosed with ulcerative colitis experience more kind of milder symptoms. Um, what is that? Similar to Crohn's, with ulcerative colitis, you have persistent diarrhea, abdominal mm -hmm. pain. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a bloody stool because of the ulcers. Exactly. And then um, bowel movements become a little bit more loose and you have that urgency and that need to go to the bathroom more. But it does tend to come and go as well, right? Yes. It, okay. So, you also so get there the, are flare-ups. There are flare-ups, it appears. Okay. Um, you also get that loss of appetite and the resulting loss in weight as well. So another thing that's shared with uh, Crohn's disease compared to ulcerative colitis, low energy, um, again, something that could affect adolescents where if younger children are diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, it could have a significant negative effect on growth and development. Now, uh, it's important for us to point out differences between IBD and IBS, right? Yes. Inflammatory bowel diseases is sort of an umbrella term that in, encompasses ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, is effectively a disorder that affects mostly the muscle contractions of the colon. Exactly. Right? So it's specific to the muscles that are found in the large intestine. And it's not usually characterized by intestinal inflammation. No. Is that correct? No, it is yeah. not. Yeah. So that's more like what? General discomfort or... I mean, that's also of unknown etiology, isn't it? No, uh, with everything that we've mentioned here, uh, and in addition to IBS, it's very much kind of, there's a lot of gray areas when it comes to uh, discovering how it comes about, yes. There's so much we don't know, isn't there? No, there's a ton. I mean, just some of the studies that you, know, you and I both found and kind of researched and looked at, uh, it's amazing that Number one, that some of these studies have only recently been performed, but also kind of everything we've talked about, going back to Crohn's disease with the mutations in those genes and the genetic variations that influence Crohn's disease. Sure. Uh, in the past few decades, researchers have identified at least 200 genetic variations that could influence uh, Crohn's disease. So, I mean, just, it's kind of like a crapshoot, you know, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. There's all. I mean, yeah. I agree with you. And you know, with ulcerative colitis, the uh, it is more um, more common than Crohn's disease worldwide. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Uh, you talked about Crohn's disease with Dr. Crohn. Well, ulcerative colitis it was first described by Samuel Wilkes in 1859. And the uh, uh, overall uh, incidence uh, is reported to be uh, anywhere between 1 to 20 per 100,000. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it's um, it does have apparently this, uh, which I did not know till I looked this up the other day, right? It does have this bimodal uh, age uh, distribution uh -huh. with an incidence peak apparently in the second or third decades, so 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. followed by a second peak anywhere between 50 to 80 years of age. That's really interesting. And apparently, uh, you know, for some reason it dips down with, uh, in, in terms of uh, distribution in the 40s uh, or so. Yeah. But uh, again, multifactorial uh, risk factors include genetics, environmental factors, uh, but a huge role for autoimmunity and the uh, gut uh, microbiota. Mm -hmm. And um, what were you saying? You, you were saying something earlier before I cut you off. Or... Oh, no, I was just thinking about, again, you know, the research that's been done, uh, the study that, what, um, you had found a, well, we'll talk about therapies, I suppose, in a few minutes, but you know, um, different microbial-based therapies that are used to treat IBD. You found one that was just published at the beginning of this year. Yeah, correct? yeah, to uh, sort of correct that uh, imbalance in microbiota. Yeah, uh, I found one study that kind of discussed um, how uh, viruses, so specific viruses that could be found in the intestines and in the digestive tract could be responsible for uh, risk of developing um, inflammatory bowel disease. And let's see here, what did they, they investigated uh, fecal samples from men and women with IBD in Chicago, Los Angeles, and even in the United Kingdom. Okay. And they basically examined and detected viral genetic material. And they uh, the thing that I like here, and as with any good study, you know, they wanted to control for the environment. Because it's a multifactorial mm -hmm. development, you need to take environment um, out of the equation. You need to control for it. So did they so, do like uh, elderly uh, or like that? Well, in this well, case, when, right. they, when, I'm, they, I'm, I'm when they took the samples, they compared uh, samples taken from the IBD patients to healthy volunteers that lived in either the same area or sometimes even in the same household. Which oh, okay. Well, is, same household is a better control. Oh, than much, area, much right? better control. Because then you can control for diet. They tend to eat exactly. the same foods. Yeah. And so I think that's something that is maybe overlooked, right? We've mentioned quite a lot in the first kind of half of the podcast, the fact that, you know, trillions of bacteria that are going to be, you know, uh, responsible and uh imbalances in those bacteria could lead to the development of IBD. And um, the gut is also home to a large proportion of varying types of viruses. Um, and well, uh, those that just live there on a normal basis. You mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, that's and, and I'm guessing that, I'm sorry, I keep coming oh, up. That's right. But I'm guessing that the uh, genes for the viruses that they found in here were not viruses that normally lived there, right? They were viruses that were infecting these people or infecting, have infected them at some point in the past, causing the inflammation in the first place. 
infecting or even in this case one particular group of viruses has expanded and become much more diverse in the patients that were diagnosed with IBD. So what they looked at here and what they found were specifically uh, the two most abundant viruses that they identified in this study sample, two groups of bacteriophages known as microviridae and caudovirales. And when they looked and at... And bacteriophages are not eukaryotic viruses that infect eukaryotes, right? These are viruses that infect... Bacteria. Bacteria. Prokaryotic. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so when they looked at the healthy participants, right, they saw that the healthy participants, the controlled subjects in this particular study, had similar numbers of members from these two viral groups. Okay. So these two bacteriophage uh, groups are present in healthy participants. However... In participants that either were diagnosed with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, the caudovirales viruses, not only were they more abundant than the microviridae viruses, but there were also more types of these viruses. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of the expansion and diversity of the caudovirales group of viruses in patients who were diagnosed with IBD. And so it really comes down to the diversification of that specific virus group. And they only, you know, they found two of these that were the most abundant. Who knows if there are other imbalances and other types of viruses or bacteriophages that are once more predisposing these individuals to IBD. Right. Right. And uh, I, I mean, another uh, evidence for uh, some of the triggers for these is an, uh, a breakdown of that immune tolerance in the gut. Yes. So you have all these bacteria that live in your gut, and your immune system frequently samples uh, what's out there in your intestine, and uh, you know uh, it, it will produce antibodies against them, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly uh, immunoglobulin A or IgA, right? That gets uh, secreted, uh, and then it can keep some of these antibodies or some of these bacteria at bay. It yep. can it can uh, tolerate sort of the immune system to. Uh, put up with the good bacteria, but kill the bad bacteria and maintain that sort of, and again, we're simplifying things here, maintain that immune tolerance in the gut so you're not having an immune reaction all the time. Yes. And once that immune tolerance is broken and you start making an immune response against everything that's out there or against some of what is then out there. And these groups are left unchecked. Then, well, not, not they're left unchecked. You, you, you're starting to uh, produce this immune response that is characterized by inflammation, mm -hmm. you're killing some of the bacteria, you're not leaving them unchecked, right? So, but, but, but what you have is an overexpansion of immune cells, an overexpansion yeah. of T cells, an overexpansion of B cells, an overexpansion of uh, pretty much every immune cell involved in that site, leading to that inflammation. Well, think about the links to stress there. You're talking about inflammation and all these very important immune cells, right? With stress and the initial overproduction and then eventually dysfunction of cortisol, you know, cortisol insensitivity and different tissues throughout the body, you know, uh, cortisol. That's why corticosteroids are the main drug of action or main drug used in this treatment. Right? Exactly. So, you know, control of inflammation and even with the disruption uh, in cortisol due to chronic, very long-term unending stress, this then affects inflammation and cortisol has also been implicated in uh, dampening other immune systems, other arms of the immune system. So that's why kind of studying this, one of the things about this study is, you know, what was the stress like, I suppose? It's very hard to study. Stress is sometimes an ambiguous term, very subjective. 
but you know these individuals, whatever stress they were undergoing, could also have played a role in you know the disproportionate amounts of these bacteriophages. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the treatment there. So right. So in patients with, so the choice of treatment will depend largely on the uh, severity of the disease, right? And uh, so something that is um, not as severe is uh, treated with a simple uh, topical or oral uh, corticosteroid, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's that 5-aminosalicylic uh, acid or 5-ASA, yeah. 5-ASA. Mm -hmm. uh, patients with severe ulcerative colitis will have to be hospitalized for treatment. The options can vary there. You can provide intravenous steroids and um, if refractory to treatment, then they uh, go a little bit further in terms of uh, steroids that inhibit uh, 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 immune function mm -hmm. or inhibit the... Like specific signaling pathways right. uh, uh, for T T-cells, for example, mm -hmm. you can inhibit calcineurin uh, for T-cell signaling. So you can use cyclosporin or tacrolimus. Uh, you can also have antibodies against tumor necrosis alpha or TNF-alpha. That's in infliximab. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's very important here to stress that you want this to be treated and managed very, very carefully. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, just what could happen as a result of, you know, mismanagement or letting these symptoms uh, progress too much. Uh, not only, you know, affecting quality of life. That's probably one of the more common things with individuals associated with these disorders. Quality of life is just diminished drastically. So oh, yeah, properly absolutely. managing and right. treating this uh, will improve quality of life, but then, you know, minimizing the risk of cancer that we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for those pa patients that uh, achieve remission after treatment, uh, they uh, tend to essentially be continued on appropriate med medication to maintain remission so you don't have another flare-up. Yes. Uh, but um, if you have some of the worst uh, symptoms of ulcerative colitis, think of toxic megacolon that you talked about earlier uh, because of the ulceration, colonic uh, perforation perhaps, or even severe uh, colorectal bleeding, yes. surgery may be needed in a lot of these cases to uh, correct some of that underlying uh, pathology. Of course. So that's for sort of like conventional therapy, right? But uh, recently, or current therapies are based on, you know, the sort of this pharmacological approach uh, for conventional therapy. But And the thing to stress here is that the approaches that you just mentioned, these treatment therapies, they're not curative. No. It's all about managing. Yeah, yeah. They're not curative at all. And uh, recently, because it's been understood that there is a huge uh, role for the microbiota to play in this disease. And go ahead. I was just going to say a lot of these, I don't want to say old-fashioned, but a lot of these therapies that have been around for a while, you know, the I mean, they steroids, folic acid yeah. antagonists, they're not really getting at the true... Uh, source, right, of the dysfunction here, and that is to, you know, treat this in the intestine by aiming therapies at the micro uh, microbes that are inhabiting the gut. Yeah, and so we talked about the uh, gut microbiome. We talked about how that's important for maintaining proper function, 
but uh, it's not just about the presence of these bacteria, right? It's the presence of certain types of bacteria. Yep. It's the presence of certain percentages of bacteria. We're not talking about total numbers here. We're talking about uh, there's more of, say, uh, one kind versus the other, or one family or genera versus the other. And any imbalance in that uh, microbiome uh, is generally referred to sort of like as dysbioses, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so of particular interest recently is investigating, uh, 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 showing that um, restoring a proper balance of these microbiomes uh, in the gut particularly as it relates to ulcerative colitis or IBD, Crohn's as well, has an effect on um, managing uh, and also possibly full remission in some of these uh, uh, diseases, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a few a few studies that um, uh, we looked at, and I'll put the links of uh, these studies in the um, in the show links, right? Uh, but uh, overall, they're they're referred to as microbial based therapies. And uh, they involve something called fecal microbiota transplantation. Which is just so... What you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> Effectively <laughs> taking healthy... <laughs> I never thought I would, uh, I guess, get it, get to a point in my career where, you know, I could actually be talking about... Uh, fecal <laughs> microbiota transplantation. FMT. Yeah, I mean, it's effectively taking the feces from healthy donors, yep. uh, cleaning them up and uh, getting the bacteria from those that are healthy bacteria, yep. right? And uh, transferring those to a diseased individual. You're just trying to restore that very delicate balance of right. microbes in the gut. Right. Yep. And uh, you can do these uh, uh, going from going up or going down effectively, right? Uh -huh. So uh, you can transfer them uh, uh, anally effectively, or they can be transferred through a uh, tube uh, inserted uh, uh, through the nose down to the uh, stomach or small intestine, right? Yeah. And it, it, it tries to restore the normal microbiota to get the effect of that microbiota-derived uh, uh, metabolites that are usually useful in, in these, in these uh, studies, right? Yeah. Or useful in these people. And we're not going to... Do you think we should talk about uh, which, which uh, bacteria are good, which bacteria are bad? I mean, usually in IBD patients... They see increased numbers of pathogenic microorganisms. I think that's such more as pro proteo sufficient. Too much, yeah, proteobacteria, you know, ruminococcus. I mean, I think that just in terms Skip of over that, don't in go terms over that. of the specific microbes, there are good types of bacteria that you want. Uh, elevations in other types or more diverse types of the bad bacteria will lead to um, that um, that imbalance. Okay, all right. Well, uh, we won't talk about these specific. If someone wants to know more about these, uh, we'll put the link in in, yep. in, in the episode, and and uh, you can email us as well. We're happy to answer answer emails. No, for sure. Uh, but for fecal microbiota uh, transfer, uh, this paper reviewed uh, effectively uh, six studies that have so done so far done uh, clinical studies re relating to fecal microbiota transfer, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they see anywhere between uh, 24 or so percent up to 77 or so percent, depending on the study. Of remission. In, in remission of clinical symptoms, absolutely. And um, 
you know, what's the time period here for kind of achieving this uh, remission or at least uh, improvement uh, in these clinical indicators? Um, well, I mean, it takes it takes weeks yeah. and, and months in some That's cases. What it looks right? like. Yeah. So uh, you would transfer. Uh, this is not a one-time treatment, mm -hmm. right? You you can imagine that uh, not a lot of this bacteria will immediately take hold. Uh, if you go through the stomach route, some of them will die before they get there. So you're talking about billions and billions transferred. Yeah. And uh, th they have to be, in some cases, they're done uh, five days per week for up to eight weeks or so. You're talking about uh, anywhere between 50 or so, 30 to 50 grams of uh, uh, feces in, you know, uh, anywhere around three, 400 milliliters of saline water uh, effectively delivered to, to patients, right? Yeah. But, I mean, uh, you see uh, clinical, uh, you see improvement yeah. pretty much within four weeks, five weeks, and then in those cases where they see clinical remission, they see remission uh, seven, eight weeks later. Yeah. Uh, the shortest, I think, I saw was six weeks. Yeah. In terms of remission of these, uh, of these uh, fecal microbiota transfer studies. And I would imagine one of the possible kind of limitations or downsides here is that it's probably difficult to um, match microbiota between um, the donor and the recipient, right. you know, to yeah. get the um, microbiota from the donor, you know, uh, let's say entrenched in the microbiome of the recipient. Yeah, it's difficult to isolate the impact of whether the microbiota from the donor or the recipient took hold or corrected, right? Some of these patients might correct their own microbiota, right? Yeah. Um, the other problem with uh, uh, fecal microbiota transfer so far, there's not a lot of uh, regulation or comprehensive guidelines on this. Okay. So it's still up in the air on whether it's heavily regulated or not. Uh, for a lot of these studies, um, there was concomitant use of immunomodulatory drugs. So it's very difficult to ascertain fully, yeah. yes. whether it's the microbiota or the drugs that were used. And you would ask yourself, well, why would they do that, right? Why would you do both? Because, well, we know they work, yep. and it's unethical not to do it, right? Exactly. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the uh, interesting part would be to see uh, whether there's more remission this way than there would be just with immunomodulatory drugs. No, right? well, yeah, you know, control it by separating into groups and isolating those different variables. Now, yeah. there are also adverse effects to FMT. Mm -hmm. Some Somewhere around 10% of those uh, fecal microbiota transfer recipients uh, presented with minor or mild, uh, uh, you know, pretty much self-limiting, however, adverse effects, right? Yeah. Uh, just disturbances in the gastrointestinal tract, such as diarrhea and abdominal discomfort, pain, things like that. Uh, there were not, uh, you know, any uh, extreme side effects or severe side effects that were observed. In one study, they did see some IBD flares uh, as a result of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't very common. Yeah. Now, this is different than probiotics. And everybody probably hears about probiotics. Yeah, they're right. food additives. Exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. And um, these are just, again, the safe food additives, these supplements and uh, pharmaceutical formulations 
that are basically live microorganisms that, and this is the key thing here. When they have to they, be live. That's a definition of a probiotic. Exactly. Yeah. They have to be alive, number one. And number two, when given in the adequate and proper amounts, they can make your microbiota, your gut microbiome, healthier. Yeah. Populate it with the more healthy types of bacteria that have been right. isolated and researched. And that came from the uh, World Health Organization. So this has been validated. The definition, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the uh, number of studies for that, that uh, probiotic for the treatment of IBD uh, that we found, what was it? Uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight different studies showing yeah. probiotic use in uh, FMT here. And this is pretty much oral delivery of viable bacteria uh, usually in the order of billions or more we're talking about 10 to the power 9 to yeah. 10 to the power 12 cfus or colony forming units that's a lot and the uh, remission in uh, uh, ulcerative colitis or crohn's disease uh, symptoms anywhere between uh, lowest number was about uh, 40 percent up to uh, 70, 70, 75% uh, clinical improvement in, uh, you know, uh, four to six weeks up to uh, 12 weeks observed. Yeah. So um, these probiotics have, um, you know, a lot of very good, obviously, effects as, you know, we see in the studies we've investigated as is reported in various commercials on TV, um, different growth factors that are produced as a result of the presence of these probiotic strains and how they, you know, strengthen the gut epithelium. And not only that, but what I'm reading here, they enhance and activate immune responses and uh, help with pro-inflammation, right? So you're really kind of spurring on and activating the immune system here to counteract the nasty effects of IBD. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, again, the good bacteria are going to compete with the bad bacteria, yeah. right? I mean, these things uh, secrete uh, all sorts of metabolites, antibiotics, things like that, that would uh, help keep other uh, other uh, harmful bacteria at bay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is the imbalance of that good bacteria that causes usually, uh, you know, think of someone that's on a long-term strong antibiotics, mm -hmm. right? They end up with a C. diff infection, yep. Clostridium difficile, uh -huh. and, uh, you know, that's difficult to get rid of, yeah. right? Uh, it's in the name. And uh, causes all sorts of problems, right? And uh, uh, keeping that healthy uh, balance of good bacteria. Uh, eat your daily yogurt. Right? There you go. Uh, uh, keeps some of these uh, uh, um, uh, problems at, at bay. So what is that? Uh, and so uh, fecal microbiota transfer, right? Probiotic. Uh, one thing that's not talked about a lot in terms of uh, treating some of the colitis not necessarily ulcerative colitis, but general colitis, uh -huh. inflammation of the colon. And uh, some of this stuff, uh, you know, started coming out uh, 10, 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, uh, talking about uh, using worms. Yeah, hookworms. Uh, well, not necessarily also, not, not just hookworms. Oh, hook but others, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other worms as well, uh, to effectively helminths. And helminths yeah. are worms that, you know, uh, usually around worms that can infect um, that can infect the gut. And uh, for those of you that know a little bit of immunology, a worm infection skews the immune response towards a, what's called a Th2 immune response. Mm -hmm. 
And a Th2 immune response is antagonistic to a Th1 immune response. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, ulcerative colitis, or colitis in general, uh, for the most part, is a Th1 heavy immune response. So you're talking here about inflammation versus non-inflammation, correct? Yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. If if you wanna if you wanna simplify it, if you wanna simplify it to to that much, sure. Yeah, just making an association for you know. Uh, between the Th1, Th2. Right. Inducing an anti-inflammatory uh, response effectively that would dampen down the Th1 in, in, in inflammatory responses. Yeah. So by inducing these Th2 immune responses by those intestinal helminths, you diminish the Th1 uh, responses, right? So very, very potent um, suppression and inhibition of inflammation. Yeah. Okay. Now, most of these studies, as they should be, by the way, have been done with worms that do not establish infection necessarily in humans. Yeah. So the most famous example that came out uh, originally in 2003 uses a worm called Trichuris. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the human worm is Trichuris tricura, but you can get infected with a pig worm, which is Trichuris suis. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they, they showed in that paper, and we'll put the link in the study by uh, Summers, Summers et al., that uh, you can infect effectively uh, individuals uh, with uh, Trichuris suis. Mm -hmm. You give them uh, 2,000 or so live Trichuris suis eggs given orally, and they're followed anywhere between 2 to 12 weeks. And uh, they showed that uh, based on uh, clinical scores and clinical indices of uh, IBD or uh, Crohn's disease in this particular case, uh, they see uh, a, a remission in, in, these, in these symptoms. Now, the reason this is a safe uh, study to do, uh, or relatively safe, obviously, mm -hmm. is because Trichuris suis uh, cannot establish infection in humans. Yeah. It'll, it'll go through, right? It'll, it'll, it'll have its Th2 response, uh, establish a very short-lived uh, inflammatory Th2 response, well, non-inflammatory Th2 response, but Th2 response and then uh, goes through you eventually, right? Uh, there is no actual worm that stays with you after the, uh, the, the, the treatment. Well, would I love to have a conversation with that doctor if I would ever get diagnosed with IVT. As far as I know, and you know, I, I'll have to look that up to be a little bit more specific about it, but as far as I know, this is not an approved treatment in the United States. Yeah. Uh, it, a lot of... Uh, patients uh, who suffer from IBD have gone to foreign countries to uh, get the worms or get the ovum. Yeah, opportunities and, for remission. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, uh, it again, uh, this is only a temporary You, you risk flare-up, yeah. You risk flare-up in the future, right? And what we're looking at here is unless, you know, you're receiving multiple doses of, you know, these probiotics or the worm treatment, um, it, it takes... It, it's a long-term disease that it has is. to be managed. I, I, I think your best uh, your your best odds are, uh, in my humble non-medical opinion, is a combination of um, non-conventional treatment with conventional. With conventional. So get get your microbiota back in check, and maybe as a result of that, you can reduce some of the corticosteroids that you'd have to take. The dependency on those, exactly. exactly. And 
Well, even that, I mean, just the research that will have to go into effect there with these novel, more innovative treatments and combining them with the more kind of immunomodulators and like you had said, the corticosteroids and whatnot. I mean, that's going to take a delicate balance, delicate treatments, different dosages, yeah. amounts of dosages. Uh, there's a lot of room and a lot of potential for more studies here. I mean, this is this is a field that... Like I said before, if you're a medical researcher in the IBD field, and especially from the treatment perspective, you could, you, there's no end to the experiments that could be done, especially yeah. combining these different therapies. And you know, originally in terms of the worm studies, uh, the, the, the work was done with uh, the whipworm, right? The Trichuris trichura, which is a whipworm, mm -hmm. a common name, whipworm. And uh, now uh, more studies have come out with hookworms. Uh, even some studies have come up with the uh, schistosoma. Right and um, you know which is not an intestinal parasite, right? Just mm -hmm. so japonicum is not an intestinal uh, parasite, but it has been uh, used to uh, see if it has an effect on uh, uh, modulating or uh, uh, any impact on lessening, I guess, the uh, colitis in in some of these. Uh, mice or uh, even human studies. Well, it appeared in, with that specific treatment, too, with the Trichuris suis, um, no side effects, right? That was a, it was reported to be safe. Yeah, the Trichuris suis, because it yeah. doesn't cause infection in yeah. humans, right? It's the pig whip, whipworm, and as a result of that, uh, relatively uh, little to no side effects, absolutely. And I would imagine that, again, voicing and reiterating what you said, uh, over-dependence and overuse of those immunomodulators, the, even the corticosteroids, you run a risk of going on the other side, going on the spectrum of now you're uh, damaging um, the immune response or changing the immune response in such a way that's not good. But if you can use something in conjunction with minimal use of corticosteroids that has no side effects, uh, that would be that would be the ideal treatment. Yeah. And remember, you know, uh, uh, outside industrialized, fully developed countries, these infections are extremely common. Yeah. These are not uh, infections that, uh, these worm infections are, I mean, hugely common in a lot of countries, right? Yeah. And there's been links or evidence to show that uh, in, in individuals that have a lot of these infections, worm infections, they suffer from, uh, or they don't suffer as much from sort of, uh, over excited immune responses later, yeah. so less allergies later in life, things like that. Yeah, uh, it's called you know, hygiene hypothesis. I'm sure you've heard of it. Of course, um, we may have talked about it in here before. That but, would, you know, we've mentioned that before. But if we decide to go down this route in the next few months, that would be a nice uh, springboard. Talking about the um, hygiene hypothesis. And you know the comparison with underdeveloped countries and whatnot, yeah, and how yeah. that relates to There are to some the interesting incidents. studies on that that no, we could sure. talk about. Yeah, no, I researched that for a bit in grad school, and it was just—I mean, it was such a fascinating theory. I'd love to revisit it. Okay, uh, what do you think about wrapping up? I think we're we're close to an hour here. I think we are. Uh, I think we're set. Okay, I think we've done our job for today. Works um, for me. So. You can email us any further suggestions. Uh, this was a suggestion from somebody, right, who wanted us to talk about yeah, yeah, IBD, yeah. ulcerative yeah. colitis, and Crohn's. 
So please um, keep the suggestions and the good thoughts and constructive points of criticism coming. Um, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. So that's thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. You just have to search for The Biobusters. You can use any podcast catcher method to download our episodes, and you can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. And I'm Why sitting... is that? Uh, no, never mind. Well, for some reason, the uh, we're starting to get some buzz here. But some whatever. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. We Go can on. just cut this part out. It's just me talking. It's uh, irrelevant anyway. We'll just cut out everything you talk. I mean, we'll, That's we'll, fine. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners prefer, uh, prefer your voice um, compared to mine. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, so I'm on Twitter, technically, although I need to begin posting. Yes, now you that, do. Now that we're at the midpoint of the semester, um, I won't say things are slowing down, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel of the <laughs> semester. I'm going to start posting these on Twitter. I'm at, I'm at Fauner916. And I'm sitting here with uh, Dr. Delbert, Abby Abdallah. You can find him on Twitter, at Dr. Delbert. All right. And uh, music is by Baha Namami. Yep. Thank you for listening, and uh, catch you next time. Thank you. All right. <laughs>